you are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, as you have a seat, <clears throat> let me introduce myself. If you haven't met, my name is Clint, one of the pastors on staff, and I'm grateful uh, to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms. We're going to spend most of our time in Psalm 145, but we're going to start in chapter one, uh, where we left off last week, because I think those two things are connected. <clears throat> Excuse me. As you're turning there, uh, just a quick word um, I think would just be helpful for you to be aware of uh, about our church. If you didn't know, back in August of last year, we, we planted, or we were a part of the, the Lord planting a new church down in Richmond Hill, CBC Richmond Hill, and actually Bill is preaching there this morning. Um, and, it, and I had lunch with Andrew, the lead pastor of that church this week, and it's just really cool to hear about what God's doing, how God's moving and working, the amount of not just people, but children, the impact they've been able to have in that community that we are actually a part of, and if you didn't know that, that's why I'm telling you. Uh, and I just encourage you to, to not forget that. It's easy just to move on and forget what God has done, and so thank God um, for what he's done in planting that church up to this point, and if you remember to pray that he would do more in and through them. Uh, If you missed last Sunday, we kicked off a series in this Old Testament book of Psalms. This word Psalms is actually a a Greek translation of a Hebrew word that is found in many of the titles of the Psalms. And the word means songs. It means songs. Bill mentioned this last week, that music and songs have a way of stirring up our affections and our mind. Um, and, And that's by God's design. That's not an accident that music does that, right? The creator God designed that to be the case. This is what the book of Psalms is. It's this collection of 150 different poems that have for centuries helped the people of God navigate through life in this world as the people of God. And what's so beautiful about the Psalms is the picture they paint of what life with God looks like, it's not the way that we tend to describe the Christian life or the the way that we tend to think about what it means to be a Christian Um, it's not all sunshine and rainbows to use the language of the Psalms. It's not always, you know, uh, lying down in green pastures and standing beside still waters. It's, it is that by God's grace, some days are like that. Some seasons of our life feel like that and praise God for it. But it's also, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's also Psalm chapter three, uh, where it says, Lord, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Psalm 10 Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's in the Bible. This reality, this emotional feeling that God has forgotten him, that it will be forever, right? That he doesn't care at all. The world is against you. God feels distant. Church, the the Psalms are not a rose-colored glasses view of life with God in this world. It's authentic and it's real. John Calvin, in his commentary on the Psalms, says this. It'll be on the screen. He says, I have been wont to call this book not inappropriately, which is just a weird old English way of saying, here's what I like to call the book of Psalms, all right? He says, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Meaning the Psalms completely capture the heart, the feeling, the emotions of what life is like for the people of God in this world. And so our hope this summer as we look at some of these songs is to allow the words in these songs to stir our minds, to stir our affections toward God so that we as the people of God might live in light of who God is and what he's done. 
We started last week in Psalm chapter one. I wanna look there as we get started, if you would, with me. Psalm one, verse one says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So there's another way uh, that you can translate this word blessed here. We talked about it last week. Anyone remember? Happy. Happy is another way to translate that. That's a literal translation, but the word carries with it more than just happiness. It's also this idea of being satisfied or content. It's the idea of a life that's whole or complete, that it doesn't lack anything, right? So if that's what it is, then the key or the source of this blessed life has to be more than just stuff or circumstances. Because new stuff gets old and circumstances change. So ultimately the blessed life that Psalm 1 is talking about, it's the life that we all want. Bill said uh, last week that Psalm 1, is, it shows us that there is a one road to life and there are two directions on this road. And you can either live your life going toward this blessed life that Psalm 1 talks about or away from it. And those are the only two options. Uh, and, and in verse three, we get a picture of this illustration, necessary, uh, sort of, of what this life looks at. Look at verse three. He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, but in all that he does, he prospers. Does anyone hear that description of life and think, no thanks? Nope, not really interested in, in a life like that. Vibrant, flourishing life. Streams aren't for me. Okay, I wanna live in the desert. Dry, I wanna be crusty every day of my life. Anyone? No. So the question here is not which one of these do you want? The question is, which one are you? Honestly, if you were to take an assessment of your life this morning, which direction is your life trending? Are you trending toward this type of life? Psalm 1 describes, or are you trending away from it? And, and what's most difficult about that question is, is you may not know. You may not know which one you are, right? Maybe you're going about your life and you know you're not perfect, but you're doing at least what you think you're supposed to do. I mean, you're here this morning, right? You're, you're at church. You, uh, you, know, you try not to be a horrible person, at least most of the time. Maybe you're on a volunteer team. Maybe you are in a community group. You give some money. You read your Bible every now and again. You pray, right? You're doing your best to do what you think you're supposed to do, and you're just sort of hoping that it's enough. And, and from my experience in pastoral ministry, this is the way the vast majority of Christians live their life. Do your best. Hope that it's enough. And what Psalm 145 is going to show us this morning is this is how we can know. This is how we can know if we're headed in the right direction or not toward the blessed life described in Psalm 1 or away from it. So I want to look at this together, Psalm 145. It starts this way. There's a subscript, Psalm 145, it says this. It's a song of praise, a song of David. So before we even read the psalm, we can learn a few things about it, right? This will be the easiest question I ask you all day. Who wrote it? David, all right? David. This is King David who wrote the psalm. So every once in a while, I'm gonna ask questions and I'll, I'll pause for a while and the expectation there is that you would answer, okay? Um, so we find out that David wrote it. This is King David. We also find out that what kind of psalm this is. It's a psalm of praise. So if you didn't know, there are, Several different types of psalms, praise, psalms of lament, thanksgiving, remembrance, ascent, a handful of others. And, and so this is a praise psalm that was written by King David. Not only that, if you have your Bible open, particularly if you have an ESV, 
You might notice that right next to the number, 145, there's a, a little number that indicates a footnote. In my Bible, it's a number three. If you look down at the bottom of the page, it says this. This, is, this psalm is an acrostic poem, each verse beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So this is an acrostic poem. This is not the only psalm like this. There are eight others. Psalm 9 and 10 are an acrostic together. Psalm 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, most notably probably Psalm 119. If you're familiar, the longest psalm in the Bible, and it actually has listed there the Hebrew alphabet, each one of those. That's what's happening here. Um, there are acrostics. So if you haven't been in elementary school in a while, do you know what an acrostic is? I'm gonna help you, okay? An acrostic is when you take a word or even the entire alphabet, you write it out vertically, and then you start each line of your poem or whatever you're writing with that letter, okay? So it can be a name, it can be uh, the alphabet, whatever. Um, and just to help you out, I wrote one, okay? I spent a lot of time on it, which you're gonna see here in a second, and it's uh, and it, with a name that you might recognize. It's named Bill, all right? Here we go. Acrostic for Bill. B, it's a big 80s guy. If you didn't know, Bill's a big 80s guy. Loves the 80s, references lots of 80s, okay? Um, I, he's an incredibly big 80s guy. <laughs> I'm serious about how much he loves the 80s, right? L, loves Star Wars, okay? And then the second L, he longs secretly to be a Georgia fan, okay? That's an example of an acrostic, okay? Acrostic for Bill. He's not here today, so we get to do what we want. Um, <laughs> That's an acrostic. What the psalm is gonna do though, instead of a name or a word, it's gonna take the Hebrew alphabet and, and it's gonna start each line of this praise song to God with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If it were written in English, we would pick up on this immediately, right? You would see the A to Z reality of this, but since it's written in Hebrew, we sort of miss this significance. But the idea is this. As King David sits down to write this psalm, to capture with pen and paper the praise that God deserves, he's saying this, that God deserves all praise from everyone, from A to Z. God deserves all praise from everything and everyone from A to Z. And you're gonna see this in the first two verses of this psalm. Look with me. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. This word extol, it, it's not one we use often. It means to praise greatly. A literal translation would be to magnify or to exalt or to lift up. And so the idea here is that David is saying, just to praise God is not enough. I will praise him greatly. And when does David say he's gonna praise God? Every day, forever and ever, he says, I will praise him. So it's not just that God is worthy of our worship so we should worship him on Sundays or even that God is worthy of our worship so we should worship him in the morning during our Bible reading time. He says perpetually, I will worship God every day from this moment on forever and ever. He says it twice. I will worship God greatly. And notice who does David say he will praise in verse one? He doesn't just call him God. What's he call him? What's he call him? King. He calls him king. And why is that significant? Because David is the king of Israel. David is the most powerful person in his world. He's the one who people pay attention to when he comes into the room. He's the one who commands armies and rules over the nation, and yet David says every day, I will bless, I will praise your name, not mine, because you are my king. Even though I may have power over my world, David says, God, you are king over the world, and so I will praise you. Patrick Schreiner, 
a New Testament scholar, seminary professor, he wrote a book called The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross. I recommend it. Here's a, what he says in this book. He says, God is king, and perhaps we are prone to think of God as a friend or a father or as some impersonal force or mystical presence. However, kingship is the root metaphor for the Bible's description of God. The kingdom is not simply social ethics or heaven or the church or God's sovereignty. The kingdom is much larger. And at the center of his kingdom stands a wooden cross covered in blood. And so he's not saying here that God isn't father or that God isn't friend. What he's saying is is that if we emphasize that God is father or friend and yet fail to see that God is king, then we will fall short of the depth of how great of a father and friend that he is. Because if God is king, when we sin against him, it's not just sin. What is it? Treason. We have sinned against the king. And and if that's what it is, then that takes our being forgiven by Jesus and his his blood on the cross for us. It takes that act of being forgiven to a whole nother level. It's not just, oh, sorry for stepping on my toe. We have committed treason against the king of the universe. And so David says, I will extol you my God and King, and I'll bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And this is the answer to our question of how do we know? How do we know if our lives are headed in the right direction or not? The answer is this. You pay attention to what you praise. Pay attention to what you praise. You look at your worship. Look at your worship. Meaning the key to the blessed life that Psalm 1 is talking about Remember, there's this, this, this one road. You can go two different ways. The key to the blessed life is not what kind of car you're in, how fast you're driving, or even who's with you. The key to the blessed life is what's happening in your heart as you go, right? It, it's, it's deeper than the, the circumstances and the stuff of life. It's about who or what you offer your praise to. Who or what functions as the king over your life. Ultimately, the key to the life that you want is about your worship. Maybe this will help. A couple weeks ago, actually two weeks to the day, my wife and I celebrated our 12th anniversary. And so we went out to dinner and we didn't go just to eat, all right? We went to celebrate. You know the difference between those two things. We celebrated in two primary ways. One, we didn't take any kids with us, all right? It was awesome. Doesn't happen very much. We went out to dinner. It was awesome. Um, Second way we celebrated is we ate really good food, really good food at a place that I just don't belong, all right? And here's what I mean like white tablecloth, multiple different glasses around, all the silverware. I don't know what to do with it. Like just that kind of dinner, the kind of dinner that even though we had been given, uh, generously given a a sizable gift card, we still, like that dinner still cost us well over $100, okay? That kind of meal. Again, I don't belong there. Like I said, it doesn't happen often and we were celebrating so we went for it. So I had steak, it was awesome. Had some salmon, very good. Had some shrimp, not that good, but the rest of it, it was awesome, okay? (laughs) And I'm, I'm a bisque guy, right? So when I go to a restaurant like that and they have lobster bisque, I'm getting it every single time. We're celebrating. So I ordered, the, and that was the best thing I had the whole night. Got this lobster bisque, they brought it out. And you know what they brought it out with? This, this fresh hot bread, okay? I mean hot, like burn your hand. And I grabbed it with my bare hands. Again, I don't belong there. I ripped a piece of that stuff off. And you know what I did? I dipped it in this lobster bisque and then I put it in my mouth. And you know what I said? Mmm. Just like that, loud too, like to the point where people are looking at us. My wife is embarrassed. We're celebrating our anniversary. It was awesome, right? She's like, I knew we shouldn't have brought you here. Um, No, like I didn't plan to say that. I didn't plan it. It just came out. Why? Because it was good. 
because it was good. And here's the point. Wouldn't it be weird to be in that moment and to say nothing at all? Like to enjoy something that much in that moment and then just to just be completely silent about it. It wouldn't make any sense. And again, the point is this. We tend to praise the things that we enjoy. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his commentary on the Psalms. It's a long quote. It's worth it. He says, I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. And it does. It is, it's a appointed consummation. He says, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke or to find no one to share it with. He goes on to say, the, the Scotch Catechism says, the man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which means this is our sole purpose for existence. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then C.S. Lewis says, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. And in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Church, this is the blessed life that Psalm 1 is talking about. That's what the life uh, planted by streams of water is. It's a life of enjoying God. Not just enjoying the things that he has created or the things that he has given us but actually, genuinely enjoying the creator God. And so if you wanna know if you're headed in the right direction, then you need to pay attention to your praise. This is what David is saying in Psalm 145. He's not saying that, that praising God is a duty or that it's something we should be doing or something we do in order to earn God's favor. He's saying this is what we do because we've already have it. He's already given it to us. Essentially, David is saying that, that a Christian offering praise and worship to God that he and he alone deserves is the mm of the Christian life. That's how we are to live. It's the only appropriate response. And so David says, I'm gonna do it every day, forever and ever and ever, not because I have to, but because offering praise is the natural response to things that we enjoy and I enjoy God. And here's the thing. I know this isn't new for us, right? You're here this morning. My guess is this is not your first time in a gathering like this, okay? So you've heard someone like me say something like this before. I know you know this. I know you know that God deserves your worship, he and he alone. I know you know that he is the only true source of joy in this life, that the life that you want is only found in him. I know you know that. Let me ask you this. Do you believe it? You know it, but do you believe it? And what does your life say, Right? If you paid attention to what you have praised over the last few weeks or months, what would come to the surface as what you believe to be most valuable and worthy of your worship? We already said that we tend to praise the things that we enjoy. So think about the moments in your life the last few weeks that were the most joy-filled for you. What were those things? And, and, and here's what stings even, and even more. Where does God fit into that? If you were to remove worship of God from those moments, how many of those moments would you have missed out on? 
because you're just living down here. There's this whole thing up here of worshiping and praising God and you're just content to be down here in the things that he has created. And I'm not trying to make us feel bad here. We've already said that the Christian life is far from always being sunshine and rainbows. There is room for what we're talking about here and uh, for Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, is there's room for these things to exist together. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, what the Psalms teach us, and we're gonna see this this summer, is when we feel that way, when we feel like God has forgotten us and he's never gonna return, they teach us to go to him rather than away from him in order to be satisfied. The Psalms show us that God alone is the source of joy that we're after, right? Um, But what do we do when we recognize uh, our worship? We pay attention to what we praise and the things in our life that cause us to respond like, "Mm." and when we find ourselves offering worship to the things that God has created rather than the creator God, we acknowledge it and repent and then give to God what only he deserves. This is David's point in Psalm 145, that God alone is worthy of our worship. And what we're gonna see, he helps us. He tells us three reasons why in the first half of Psalm 145. We're only gonna get through the first half today. Um, One, because I say a lot, I, I talk more than I should. Two, because I saw several pastors this week who preached through whole sermon series on this one Psalm alone. Okay, so we're gonna get through the first half. We're doing pretty good. Three times in this first half of this psalm, David says, the Lord is blank. They all start with G. And this is why he says, this is what fuels his worship of God. God alone is worthy of our worship because he's great, because he's good, because he's gracious. Let's look at the first one. The Lord is great. Verse one, he says, I will extol you, my God and King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate, and they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. Four times in a handful of verses, David says, the Lord is great. Three times in verse three, where David says his greatness is unsearchable. Other translations of that say unfathomable. God's greatness, he says, is incomprehensible. I listened to a pastor this week who said this. The point is simple. No matter how highly you think of God, you are not thinking highly enough. So what he's talking about. Church, God is all-powerful. I want this to sink in. He is all-knowing. He is eternal. He has no beginning or end. He has always been, he will always be. Next week, we're gonna look at Psalm eight where David says that God, every moon and star that exists in the sky is there because God put it there. And here's the thing. David didn't know the fullness of what he was saying when he wrote that. God knew, but David didn't know. He didn't know that the the moon is 239,000 miles away when he said, God, you put the moon there. But God did. He didn't know the sun was 92 million miles away. He's just looking up at the sky and he's marveling at the greatness of God. David didn't know, but God knew because his greatness is unsearchable. In April of last year, NASA scientists, okay, we're going into spaces past my brain and pay pay grade, but they somehow broke the record for the the farthest astronomical event ever observed in April of last year, right? So they're calling it a possible galaxy. I don't know how something's possibly a galaxy. I feel like it either is or it isn't, but it's a possible galaxy. 13 and a half billion light years from Earth. All right, let's let this sink in. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. 
which means in the course of a year, light travels almost six trillion miles. And this possible galaxy is 13 and a half billion light years away. And here's why I tell you that, because every single one of its stars and every star between here and there, they're all there because God put them there. And more than that, Hebrews says that God upholds the universe by the word of his power, which means they're not just there because God put them there, they stay in their place because God holds them in his hands. God's greatness is unsearchable. The first thing David says fuels his worship of God is God is great because David could see clearly that God is bigger than he could wrap his mind around. And, and the opposite is true as well. Where we lack worship of God, we can be sure that we have lost sight of his greatness. Oftentimes when we fail to see the greatness of God, it's because we have become preoccupied with our own greatness. And we, we think God becomes small in our minds. We diminish him in our minds. He becomes small in our hearts because we occupy the space that belongs to him, right? Uh, here's how you can know if you've lost sight of God's greatness or if he's become small in your heart is that when you sin, your thought about that sin will be small. You can be confident that you've lost sight of God's greatness if when you sin, you're your thought about that sin will be small. Here's what I mean. You have sin in your life, so do I, and there are things that you know you shouldn't do. But when that moment comes and you have the opportunity to either obey God or not, you do it anyways. Because at the end of the day, who really cares what God thinks? Because I wanna do this right now. So I'm not talking about sin in your life that you struggle with or that you're battling with or that you desperately wish wasn't present in your life. I'm talking about the things in your life that you know exist, that you know God says don't go that way and yet you keep walking that way because you want it. You play with it, you tolerate it, you think small about that sin and if you have small thoughts about a great God is what allows us to live this way. Remember, God isn't just our father or our friend. He is the king. And so when we, since that's who he is, our sin isn't just sin. It's treason against the creator God of the universe. It is a declaration against him, just like Adam and Eve before us in the garden who said, God, I am better suited to be a king over my life than you are. I know what's best, what will satisfy my life. So I know you say, don't go this way, but I'm gonna do it anyways in this moment because I want it. Because you're not great, I am. You can be confident we've lost sight of God's greatness when we treat our sin with low thoughts of our sin. Our dull praise of God reveals we've lost sight of his greatness, but as long as he is exalted above us, then we must bow before him in worship. The one who speaks, the one who spoke and created everything that is, he has given us his words in this book. The same power that created the heavens and the earth is available to us in this book, and if we're honest, most of us couldn't care less to read it. Myself included uninterested, uninterested. We make excuses. I would, but I'm too busy. I don't understand, right? I don't feel like it is a big one. I intended to read my Bible today, but I just didn't feel like it. I'd rather scroll on my phone, I'd rather watch, whatever. Did you notice in the Psalm, David separates the need to offer praise and worship to God from how he feels in that moment? Verse two, he says, I will praise him every day, forever and ever, I will praise him. It separates it from how you feel in the moment, meaning God's greatness is greater than even the most difficult of your circumstances and however you feel in the moment. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter four, be on the screen. He calls the suffering of this world light and momentary, not because he doesn't think that what we're going through is, is difficult, but compared to God, 
There is no comparison. Compared to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 18, he says, we look not to the things that are seen, to the created things. We look to things that are unseen because the created things are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He is talking about the unsearchable greatness of God. And church, life has a way of luring us away from marveling at the greatness of God in two primary ways. It lures us away and, and, and lulls us to sleep in two primary ways. One, by just punching us in the mouth with the difficulty of our circumstances. We, we, we struggle to marvel at the greatness of God because when life gets tough, we begin to question, how could God be this great and yet allow me to go through this? Either through punching us in the mouth with the difficulty of our circumstances or and maybe most notably, by just lulling us to sleep and just being distracted by the things of this world. We don't marvel at the greatness of God because we're, if we're honest, we're kind of fine without him. Right? This is what David says to that. Verse five. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. David says, I will steep myself in the glorious splendor of your majesty, who you are, and the, and the wondrous works, what you've done. David says, I'm gonna steep my life in who my God is and what he's accomplished for me so that I couldn't possibly think low or small thoughts of God. He says, I will meditate on them. Meditation is one of those spiritual disciplines that we don't even do, we don't even think about. We read our Bible and we pray, but we don't meditate because that's weird. We think about Eastern meditation, right? And, and when Christians meditate, when David's talking about meditation, he's not talking about emptying your mind so that you can become one with the universe or blending the distinction between created and creator. No, in Christian meditation, just like he says here, we fill our minds with what's true and biblical about who our God is and what he's done, and then we respond the way he says this. They shall speak of your mighty, awesome deeds, verse six, and I will declare your greatness. This is the only natural response to seeing who God is and to seeing what he's accomplished for us is we declare his greatness. So let me ask you this. What does your life declare is great? What does your life declare is great? If you need help, ask someone who will help you. Ask someone you can trust. If you have kids, you ask them. They will be honest with you, I promise. Kids are ruthless. Just finished coaching some seven and eight-year-olds, some pitching machine baseball. It was awesome. And uh, I don't remember what had just happened, but I was coaching in this moment. I always get down their level. So I get on the knee, look them eye to eye. We're squaring them up, and we're going to, I'm, I'm giving them the, just the best speech they've ever heard. I'm sure of it, right? Because I'm a good coach. Just awesome. It was compelling. It was motivating, right? We're doing this. And then this kid taps me on the shoulder, interrupts me, and he goes, your teeth are crooked. And to be fair, they are, so that's fine, right? But like, how do, I'm just a grown man, seven and eight-year-olds, and I'm just like battling all this deep insecurity and shame about like, oh man, you know, like covering my mouth. Like, and then I'm trying to bring it back to this in, in, in motivating speech, right? Or bring it back, and another kid goes, and they're yellow too. <laughs> you're like, kids will be honest with you. If you're brave enough and you have kids, ask them, who or what does my life declare is great? David says, I will declare your greatness because God alone is worthy of our worship because he is great. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Psalm 145 shows us God alone is worthy of our worship, not just because he's great, but because he is good. 
Look at verse six. They shall speak of your might, of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. In verse seven, when it says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, this word pour forth, it means to burst out. It's like that mm, at dinner the other night. Didn't plan it, it just comes out because you enjoy it, because it's good. It's a natural response. And what verse six is saying to the people of God, to you and me this morning, is that we should become experts in God's goodness to us. Church, as the people of God, we should become experts in God's goodness to us. Not all the things that we don't have or all the reasons we have to complain, experts in God's goodness to us. So it's like that anniversary dinner. The food, as incredible as it was, it does not deserve my worship. You know who does? God. So the conversation with my wife, or at least the the things that are going on in my head, it should go something like this. How good is God that we get to do this tonight? How kind has God been to us to surround us with people who love us enough to give us a gift card so that we can do this tonight, right? How good is God that he puts people in our lives who we trust with our kids when we're gone, and if I'm honest, my kids would probably rather be with them, right? How good, that's a gift, that's evidence of God's goodness to me. How blessed are we that we have the financial resources to use over $100 on a single meal where millions of people around the, around the world won't spend in a month, how good is God, right? How, how good is God that food can taste this good? Not just that God has gifted and given people the ability to make food this way, taste this good, but even the fact that food has taste is an evidence of goodness, uh, the goodness of God to us. You know, God could have designed our bodies to, to be nourished by flavorless paste, but he didn't. Why? Because he's good, because he's good. And on and on and on I can go, and I will, even though I don't have time. Every single morning when I leave for work, God has given me one of the greatest kindnesses of this, the most beautiful little three-year-old girl in the world, okay? And I'm biased, but she is, okay? Every single day when I leave for work or whatever time I leave, if she's awake, she sprints out. We have this like picket fence, Um, she sprints out to the front and she waits there and as I pull out, she blows me a kiss and she says, bye daddy, I love you, right? Um, And here's the thing, I know that there will come a day where she won't do that anymore. But I'll tell you what, every day she does it, I will praise God. I wanna be an expert in God's goodness to me because it is not hard to find reasons to complain. It is not difficult to find reasons to bemoan the things that God hasn't done for us as we look around and compare ourselves. But, but if you become an expert in the things that God's, here, here's what happens. You begin to see it everywhere. When you start to pay attention to God's goodness to you, you begin to see it everywhere. Things happen all around us. We just need perspective to see them. Like leaves, when they die, they don't have to be beautiful. You know that, right? And you're like, well, they're not in Savannah. But in other parts of the world, they are. That's evidence of God's goodness to us. The other night, it, at the way it smells after a thunderstorm, 
Small things, but they're evidences of God's goodness to us. And again, I could keep going. This is how you know if you're headed in the right direction. You pay attention to your praise. You become an expert in God's goodness toward you rather than all the reasons you have to complain. And church, if you hear anything from me this morning, you hear this. When you start to pay attention to it, again, you see it everywhere. Here's an example. Um, Last fall, we had a guy join our staff, Tim Buchek. If you haven't met him, he's preached here a couple times. And Tim... was gifted or ended up, he has this car. The car he drives is a powder blue, little sparkle, Hyundai Sonata, okay? And now, praise God, he has a transportation that works, right? But it's the type of car that when you see it driving on the road, you fully expect there to be a tiny gray-haired woman driving it, like you just do. <laughs> and there's no, no, I don't wanna hurt anyone, tiny gray-haired women, we're thank you. We're grateful for you, we all exist because of you, okay? Praise God. You know what I'm talking about, though, right? It's the type of car where you go, someone's grandmother drives that, okay? And that's what Tim drives. And I'm not hating on it. He's got a great car. Powder blue, sparkly Hyundai Sonata. Here's the thing. Here's the way it's when I tell you that. Um, I don't, before he joined our staff, I don't think I ever saw one of those, that color, ever. Not one single time. But now, I see him all the time. I'm driving on the road and I go, oh, that's gotta be Tim because there's only one of these in our city, I'm sure of it, okay? That's gotta be him and I drive by and it's not. It's someone's grandma, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, there's another one. And then I go down the road and there's another one, there's another one. And here's the thing. It's not that I'm now all of a sudden surrounded by powder blue Hyundai Sonatas, I don't think, unless God's playing a trick on me. It's that I didn't look before. It's perspective, And when you begin to dial into God's goodness to you, you begin to see it everywhere. And it just rolls up into worship. It doesn't stop at the created things. It's not, man, praise God for this beautiful little girl that God's given me and I get to be her daddy. It's how good is God that he saw fit that I get to be her daddy. That it rolls up into that. Look at verse seven. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. They shall sing aloud of your righteousness. This sing aloud, it literally translates shout joyfully. David says to the people of God, we should sing and offer praise to God because of who he is and what he's done, because of his righteousness. Not because we're good at singing or because we feel like it, but because of who God is and what he's done. We should shout joyfully. Church, our worship of God is far more than what we do in this room on Sundays. It's far more than congregational singing. It is no less. I think the way we sing is indicative of the praise we give God outside of this room as well. He says, shout joyfully. And when we sing, we're not just warming up for the sermon or filling time after it. Clearly, I could keep going, okay? I'm over time already and I haven't finished my second point. We're gonna be fine. But it's not because we're trying to fill time. It's because when we sing together, we are corporately remembering and celebrating who our God is and what he's done for us. And we're offering him the praise that he and he alone deserves. And our corporate singing is a picture of what our lives should be, worship that we would pour forth the fame of his abundant goodness. Psalm 145 shows us that God alone is worthy of our worship because God is great, because God is good. And then here's the third one. He is gracious. Verse eight says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you were here through our series in Jonah, this verse should sound familiar. Jonah quotes it in anger to God when the Ninevites repent because he didn't think the Ninevites deserved salvation from God. 
which shows that he didn't understand grace because nobody deserves salvation from God. Right? These are the very words, this verse eight is the very words that God proclaims to Moses in Exodus 34. If you don't know the story, God delivers Israel out of slavery in Egypt, miraculously brings them through the Red Sea, out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai where God makes a covenant with his people and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And while that's happening, while this interaction with God and Moses is happening, the people are down below uh, on the mountain, and what do they do? They worship a golden calf. They get restless. They start to believe that they know better what's gonna satisfy them, and so they offer their worship to someone other than God. And in that moment, like that, while God is making this covenant with his people through Moses, they're down there worshiping something else. In that moment, God had every right to wipe them out. Just a, are you kidding me? I'm the God of the universe, all-powerful, all-knowing, making a commitment to you to be your God forever, that you would be my chosen people, and you're gonna worship a golden, like he could have wiped them out, but instead, the Bible says he, called, he puts Moses, causes his goodness to pass in front of him, and he declares to Moses his character, his nature. He says this, I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you see the dichotomy here? There is anger, God hates sin, make no mistake, he, his anger is kindled against sin, but the Bible says he is slow to anger. And yet, what is he not slow in? Love, that he abounds in love. Not only love, steadfast love. This is two English words, obviously, that's trying to capture the heart of one Hebrew word, hesed, which is God's covenant love for his people. So covenant love, think wedding vows. For richer or poor, in sickness and in health, has said his steadfast love that God abounds in for you right now is God saying, I'm in. On the days you deserve it and on the days you don't, for richer or poor, I'm in with you till death do us part forever. God says, I'm in. He has given us his I do. He makes good on that promise from Psalm 145 in Jesus because Jesus came, lived, died in our place. He cancels the record of debt that stands against us. We couldn't possibly have earned God's love and forgiveness and yet he lavishes it on us in Jesus, cancels the record of debt that stands against us and God not just forgives us of our sin, he adopts us because of his steadfast love into relationship with him as children. You, right now, the good news of the gospel is that we belong to God as sons and daughters. Because his, he, his, uh, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I have this dog who, it's like 80 pounds, it's a big lab, um, and I also have a son, he's not quite 80 pounds, but um, he's allergic to dogs. So those two things don't go together, all right? Um, so he stays outside most of the time, this dog. And then because we're not horrible people, there is a room in our home that he goes into and he enters it from the outside. But when he wants to get into that room, we're, no one's sitting there, so he comes and he jumps on the door next to our living room. And when he jumps on it, I mean like it sounds like he's breaking the thing in. And the glass is just like ruined, it's all scratched up from this dog, you know, I'm gonna have to replace it eventually, like probably the day before we sell it, but not until then, because that's what we do. Um, but he, it just nails the door and it frustrates me, because I'm like, dude, stop, all right? You know better, like please stop doing this. And I'm like, stop it, go around. And then he just runs around. He's like, yeah, 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 I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. He runs around and I go around the side of the door and he's sprinting. So excited, I can't wait. I'm gonna be inside. It's gonna be, not be hot, right? Whatever. 
Um, and I go to open the door and he sprints, 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 sprint, and then he just stops and he backs up and he's scared because he disobeyed and he knows he's probably, he's afraid that I'm gonna hit him, okay? No one call anybody, I don't hit him, I don't beat my dog, all right? Here's the point. I wonder how many of us live our lives, our relationship with God that way. That we know we don't deserve it and we want in and so we come, come, come and then we just, we wait for the inevitable. That God is gonna punish us. And yet the Bible says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love and the Bible says that there is no punishment left for you and me because Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf in full on the cross. And so it's just come in. It's just come in, right? His love never runs out, God doesn't run low, he doesn't scrape the bottom of barrel or need to be replenished in his love. It is not up to us to do enough or be enough to earn God's love or to keep his love. The good news of Christianity is not do your best and then hope that one day it's enough. It's that at your very worst and at my very worst, God gives us his best in Jesus and because of that, we can be confident that God is not waiting to drop the hammer on us but he's inviting us into this steadfast love type of relationship with him as sons and daughters because he's gracious and merciful. So we can run to him regardless of how dirty you might feel without fear that you will be punished or that he will turn you away because he's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love. Church, this is the heart of Psalm 145. This is who our God is. He's big and he alone deserves our worship because he's great, because he's good and because he's gracious. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, we're thankful that every single day when we wake up, the reality is we are undeserving of your love and mercy. And yet, every single day when we wake up, we can be confident that we have it because of Jesus. I pray for the folks in this room, God, that you would allow by the power of your Holy Spirit, the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel to find its way deep into our souls that we might bear fruit for your kingdom. Would we be Psalm 1 people who offer you and you alone the worship that you deserve? We'd be like trees planted by streams that we would bear fruit in our season, that we, our leaf wouldn't wither, that all we do, we would prosper. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Let's stand together and respond.